it's an absolute pleasure to introduce Les once again to those of you who did not know him. Uh, Les studied philosophy and history of religions at La Trobe. In his working life, his career has spanned electronics, IT, training and development, and business improvement. He has authored many articles and given many talks on humanism, ethics, religion, and philosophy. In 2018, Leslie started up uh, the first Australia's first ex-religious support network. He also runs this group that we're all a part of here. And he serves on the Committee of uh, Humanist Victoria and is owner and manager of the Rational Realm website, which is a great source of all things related to philosophy. And uh, with it, it also explores the boundaries between science and philosophy and various other intersection points, a website that I highly recommend. Um, and a very quick description of what the session is going to be tonight. The view that human beings do not exercise free will appears for many to be a consequence of a modern scientific view of the universe and uh, humankind's place in it. It is a view that is popular amongst humanists, atheists, and many other free thinkers. In this address, Les endeavors to show how this myth is based on some fundamental errors of reasoning and an insufficient attention to how free will language is used by ordinary folk. He gardens ordinary usage and modern medical and legal practice to develop his 4C theory of the requirements for acting freely in a world exclusively governed by physical, chemical, and biological forces. So it's it's all to you now, Les. Well, thanks very much, Usha, for that introduction. Um, for, so for those who don't know me, just let me fill out my history, my background a, a little bit more to put in context my thinking that I'll um, explain tonight on free will. So just before I do that, let me start up my whiz-bang slideshow. So just bear with me while I bring that up. Okay, hopefully you can see my slides and hopefully you'll still be able to see in a panel to the bottom or to the right or to the top, um, the participants as well. So a little about my, my background. I took an interest in the various sciences from an early age. Uh, my first interest was astronomy. I was there fascinated by the stars, galaxies, supernova and planets, as many young people are. My interest then progressed to chemistry as I wondered about how a small number of elements combine to make the multitude of materials we see. My next interest in electronics became my first career. At the institute where I was studying electronic, electronics, I often got into debates on the big questions of life with a very religious colleague of mine. I remember him always ending the conversation with the advice that I should go and read so-and-so. My interest in philosophy was so piqued that I studied philosophy and history formally at La Trobe University throughout the 1980s. That was last century, it seems like, um, while I was also working full time and raising a family. The picture you can see at the bottom of the slide um, is of the very picturesque moat and grounds at La Trobe University. My main study interests were in two fields. The first was ethics and religion. 
The second area of study was epistemology, especially the subdiscipline of the history and philosophy of science. A couple of years ago, my partner and I retired our business, so I'm now able to devote time to the my primary loves being science and philosophy. I spend some of my time contributing to my local secular humanist chapter, Humanist Victoria, and then continuing to build up the first ex-religious support network here in Australia. Um, I'm also busy publishing essays to my Rational Realm website and publishing videos to my Rational Realm YouTube and Vimeo channels. So to find us, just search for Rational Realm in your search engine. So the origin of my talk tonight, um, when I was studying at university back in the 80s, I subscribed to a view called hard determinism, and I'll explain in a moment what that view entails. One tenet of that view is that human beings never exercise free will. Now, at the time, I believed that is what a scientific understanding of the universe and our place in it leads a rational person to believe. As I progressed beyond first year studies, I got to appreciate that the hard questions in philosophy are hard for a reason. I came to appreciate nuances in the debate that had escaped me in my novice years. Now that I'm retired, I spend a fair amount of time engaging with fellow naturalists, humanists and atheists. Seeing many of them fall into the same traps that I did as a novice prompted me to write a defense of free will from a determinist perspective. So this talk tonight is based on an essay I wrote in mid-2016 titled Free Will and Compatibilism. And you can find that essay in the metaphysics section um, of my Rational Realm website. You can see the big, one of the big red tiles uh, on the screen. Um, and from there, you can also get a transcript of an earlier version of the talk I'll do tonight. So the talk I'm doing tonight is um, a simpler version of the essay titled Free Will and Compatibilism. If you want to get the transcript of the talk, just go in metaphysics section and look for Are We Free Willing Robots? So let me start by um, painting or picturing the free will determinism landscape. So for those who are new to the debate, um, let me give you a quick rundown on terminology. This helicopter view of the landscape will help you make sense of how the various approaches to the question of free will differ. The modern scientific view of the world paints human beings as an integral part of nature. This view sees us as part of the natural universe, subject to the same physical, chemical and biological forces as other entities in the universe. Our hopes, desires, beliefs and values all have a biological basis that can be explained using physical models and natural laws. What can be explained includes our volition, our choosing to act one way rather than another. So say, for example, we decide to read out the word cat from a book. Look at this diagram of a person's brain and just follow the arrows in there. Neuroscience tells us that we recognize the word in our visual cortex. That recognition is transferred into an auditory impulse in the angular gyrus. Wernicke's area then interprets the auditory code 
Next, um, Broca's area prepares and controls the motor cortex for speech. Finally, the motor cortex activates the many speech muscles in our mouth and tongue. What is not clear in this diagram is that other parts of the frontal lobe uh, housing uh, Broca's area and the motor cor cortex are involved in our first forming the intention to speak. All of this information processing occurs at the level of neurons. There are some 80 billion neurons in a normal adult brain with some 100 trillion connections between them. Each connection is made using very small electrical impulses moving along axons and dendrites. They're the connections between the neurons. One neuron can have literally thousands of connections to other neurons. This electrical activity is further regulated by neurotransmitters acting in the brain. Two such chemical messengers are serotonin and dopamine. The point here is that according to neuroscience, all of this activity happens strictly according to the laws of physics. The upshot is that all human behaviours, voluntary and non-voluntary, are determined by physical forces. Hence the term determinism to denote this view of the universe and our place in it. This view that all events in the universe, including our own behaviours, is determined by prior states of the universe, coupled with immutable physical laws, is often referred to as causal closure. The opposing view that there are some activities in the brain that are not caused by prior physical events or not completely caused by prior physical events is called indeterminism. This view allows that some human behaviours, such as choosing to re read the word cat, are not completely caused by physical forces. This account is called a contra-causal view because it is contra or against a complete physical explanation of human decision-making. This lack of a complete physical explanation could be because of quantum fluctuations in some neuronal activity or because there exist, exist non-material minds or souls that act on key neurons involved in human decision-making. For an excellent overview of the various types of indeterminism, I do recommend the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on, and the entry is called Incompatibilist Non-Deterministic Theories of Free Will. Determinists and indeterminists can jump one of two ways when it comes to the question of whether human beings possess free will. This diagram maps out the territory of possibilities. Note the two axes. The vertical axis indicates acceptance or not of the thesis of determinism, yes or no. The horizontal axis indicates acceptance or not of human beings exercising free will, at least some of the time, no or yes. Now take the determinists first, the top row in our diagram. They could argue that determinism precludes us having free will, that is, no free will. In that case, they are the hard determinists shown in the top left quadrant. Those that argue that determinism does not preclude free will are labelled soft determinists, indicated in the top right quadrant. Today, they are more commonly called 
compatibilists for the simple reason that they claim that the thesis of determinism is compatible with us having free will. A common misconception is that soft determinists, the compatibilists, don't fully accept the thesis of determinism, or at least for the sake of argument. This is not the case. So I want to emphasize this. The word soft in determinism, soft determ determinism, doesn't mean that they are soft on determinism. They think that determinist determinism applies only some of the time. No, the soft determinist is just as much a determinist as the hard determinist. Now consider the indeterminists along the bottom row. The libertarians who occupy the bottom right quadrant argue that a necessary condition for free will is that not all human behavior is completely down to physical states and forces. The hard compatibilists in the bottom left quadrant, on the other hand, argue that even if some human behaviors are not fully caused by physical forces, free will remains an Im impossibility. So for the hard in incompatibilists, whether determinism is true or not, um, doesn't matter. We don't have free will in either case for the hard incompatibilists. So think for a moment about which of these four quadrants your own view on free will and determinism is located. Think first about where you sit on the determinism axis. Is it a yes or a no for determinism? Then think about where you sit on the free will axis. No or yes for free will. The intersection between your two answers locates your philosophical position. The key observation I want to point to here is this. Just because determinism is true, it's not automatically the case that we have no free will. The two concepts may be compatible. Similarly, just because indeterminism is true doesn't make it automatically the case that we have free will. The two concepts may be incompatible. Whether you think determinism is true or not, you can't assume automatically that we have free will or that we can't have free will. If you think you have good grounds for your conclusion, that is for whether we have free will or not, you will need an argument for your conclusion. Now, you may be wondering where contemporary professional philosophers stand on the question of free will. The results of the 2020 survey of philosophers were recently released. It reveals that some 60% of contemporary professional philosophers are compatibilists. 19% are libertarians, and only 11% conclude that we have no free will. Um, now, the, the reference for that um, is on my final slide if you if you want to look that up. So why does the question of free will matter? If you don't think we have free will for one reason or another tonight, I want to present to you some basic reasons for why we in fact do. If you subscribe to determinism and think on that basis, we could not have done other than we do. I hope to show you that free will and determinism are not incompatible. If you are a libertarian and think that the fact that we have free will is a reason for rejecting the determinist thesis, my talk tonight will attempt to show you that is not a good reason for rejecting determinism. I'm not going to argue for the truth of determinism tonight. That's not my aim. I will just say parenthetically 
that the truth for determinism, at least at the macro level of human beings, is evidence from a number of areas of study. These include physics, which includes the principle of conservation of energy, neuroscience, pharmacology, evolutionary biology, developmental psychology, and artificial intelligence. Why is this question of free will important anyway? Isn't it just an intellectual word game played by philosophers with nothing better to do? Well, one significant impact is on how people see the justifiability of moral judgments. Many scientifically minded determinists think that once we get over the illusion of free will, we will see that we also need to ditch the concept of moral responsibility. And this has impacts on how we praise and blame people for their actions, how we treat people in law courts, and how we punish people in our penal systems. These hard determinists also want to bring about a wholesale change in the way we talk. They want us to give up what we take today as quite ordinary talk. Take a rather everyday mundane expression such as, I got a free choice on what uniform I wear to work. Well, for these hard determinist language reformers, that's out the window. So I'm not going to talk about these implications for how we view moral responsibility tonight. That is a big subject in itself. What I do find, though, is that many of the arguments against free will and moral responsibility are based on some fundamental philosophical mistakes. Many people get a big headache when they see philosophers debating free will. Tonight, I'm going to keep it simple. Tonight, I want to present to you a different way of looking at the question, a way that will challenge you while bringing simplicity and clarity. The approach I will use is called an ordinary language analysis. You may have heard that term in philosophy. This approach investigates what we mean by free will and whether we have it or not by looking at how ordinary folk talk about free will. And look, let me add in that it's not just, I won't just be looking at how ordinary folk talk about free will, but I extend that to how medical practitioners, psychiatrists talk about free will, the medical profession, as well as um, people in the judicial system, how they regard free will as well. So this approach is a strong antidote to the effort by hard determinists and libertarians to convince us that when ordinary folk talk of acting freely, they are referring to an undetermined or underdetermined will, that is a contracausal will. I will try to show you that hard determinists and libertarians are overlaying our ordinary everyday language with their own metaphysical uh, presuppositions. I will try to show that our ordinary free will talk is metaphysically neutral. What I mean by that is that when Joe says, for example, that he freely gave up his seat on the, bet, on the bus, that his expression is agnostic about whether or not his brain states were completely determined by prior physical events. So tonight, I'll present my case by first looking briefly at the etymology and lexicography of the term free will. Uh, next, I'll work through a number of examples illustrating the four kinds of situations that ordinary folk and working professionals consider, limit our exercise of free will. Then I'll review what are called paradigm cases of people exercising their free will and how the word free modifies other words. Next, I'll roll up all of these learnings into a coherent theory about the four necessary requirements for an agent to choose freely. 
I'll call this the 4C theory. Free will skeptics deny our ability to do other than we in fact do. This skepticism impacts a range of ethical questions about how we ought to treat others. I'll venture a brief non-technical look at the answer to this question about whether we could have done otherwise. I'll then end on a magical note about the supposed free will illusion. So the journey I will take you on here is just a snapshot of the longer journey through the nine reasons presented in my free will and compatibilism. And I mean, the nine reasons, the first seven reasons are arguments, uh, arguments proper, and the last two, a fourth C theory account of free will and the character-based analysis that could have done otherwise um, are, are, are um, ways of analysing free will that allows us to rescue the term free will. So let's start with looking at the first situation in which we think we lose our free will, uh, and that's coercion. And let's do that by starting with some basic etymology. The term free arose from the old English word frio in the 13th century. And this, this word meant, quote, free except exempt from, not in bondage. And then between the years 1525 and 1535, the conjoined term, when the term free will was first came together as free will, um, that arose for the first time uh, in 1525, around, uh, around then 1535. In the literature of the day and in the ensuing decades, the term was used to denote a person's will that was not constrained or forced. From its earliest uses, it meant an unencumbered and uncoerced will. Uh, take, for example, Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. That was written around 1606. There in the play, Octavia pleads to Caesar that he traveled to Rome of his own free will in spite of the constraint put on him by Mark Antony. As Octavia puts it in the play, quote, good, my Lord, to come thus, I was not constrained, but did it on my free will. Here's another example from the 17th century. Charles Dickens's uh, Nicholas Nickleby, Nicholas begs the young Madeline to not marry Mr. Gride as she is unknowingly being impelled to do so. And Madeline protests, quote, I'm impelled to this course by no one, but follow it of my own free will. You see, I'm not constrained or forced by menace and intimidation, end of quote. As you can see from these early uses, a free will is contrasted with a constrained or forced will. It's not contrasted with a neurologically caused will. The constraints identified by these characters are constraints put up by other people and not causes lurking in heritable characteristics or brain physiology, as hard determinists and libertarians want us to believe. The idea that absence of coercion is central to the notion of free will carries through to the modern day. Uh, the Collins English Dictionary renders one of the two meanings of free will as, quote, the ability to make a choice without coercion, and it then gives an example in use. He left of his own free will. I did not influence him. Similarly, Webster's revised unabridged dictionary gives the first of two meanings to free will as, and I quote, a will free from impro improper coercion or restraint. 
and it, it also gives an example in use. To come thus was I not constrained, but did on my free will. So I want to conclude here that absence of coercion is a central requirement for an act to be considered free. Now, in my essay, you can read three modern-day examples of ordinary use that further illustrate this point. Now, with modern advances in science and jurisprudence, lay and professional folk, folk have come to appreciate that a person's will can also be encumbered or restricted in other situations. In addition to coercion, these other kinds of situations in which a person's capacity to exercise the, their free will is restricted are these, manipulation, addiction, and mental illness. And it, it is to each of these that I, I now want to turn. So that second situation, manipulation. When you're coerced into doing something you don't want to do, you feel real psychological pressure. Imagine someone holding a gun to your head. On the other hand, when you are robbed of our free will through, when we are robbed of our free will through manipulation, we don't feel this pressure personally. Yet the person on the street also regards manipulation as a means of robbing a person of their freedom to choose. In both cases, though, the basic notion remains the same. An unfree will is an unencumbered will. Oh, sorry, an unfree will is an encumbered will. Manipulation is a direct means of mind control and includes hypnosis, brainwashing, brain implants, and zombie drugs. These are some of the classic instances you'll read in the literature. Here are a couple of examples of how non-philosophers and non-theologians regard free will in these cases. The first case is this. Yeonmi Park fled Kim Jong-il's North Korea with her parents. She claimed she was brainwashed by the regime with the result that, and I quote, I had not been a real person. I was created for the regime to work for them. If they ordered us to die, I would have died for them. I wasn't a human. I was something else. End of quote. After escaping and educating herself, she said, quote, I now have free will. As this example illustrates, brainwashing robs a person of their free will through replacing their personal identity, their character with another. Central also is the idea that this manipulation is done deliberately by another agent. Once again, the philosophers and theologians notion of contra-causality seems inconsequential. So this theme of third-party control and loss of character appears also with judgments about brain implants, which is my second example here. Although mind control through brain implants is still very much the preserve of science fiction, some believe it is happening now. Dave Hodges writes that the government's aim in microchipping every citizen is, and I quote, the complete control of every individual through mind control and to control all thought, all emotion, and consequently all behavior. The end result will be to remove all potential opposition, that is free will, end of quote. The interesting thing here is that for Dave Hodges, we all currently possess free will, even though 
our minds are strictly subject to causal laws. The tipping factor for this writer is third party control and not determinism. So the third situation that uh, limits our free will is addiction. So I wanna say a little about that. For the ordinary person on the street, as well as for medical and legal experts, many addictions are seen as compromising a person's ability to choose freely. These psychological compulsions that inhibit the exercise of free will include alcohol, substance, work and gambling addictions. Examples are addiction to sex, hoarding, kleptomania, and pyromania. Let's look at drug addiction as an example. Dr. Alan Leshner is director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse in the United States. He was asked in an interview about the drug addict's lack of choice and what this means for free will. First, he emphasized that, and I quote, one's brain is constantly changing as a function of the experience one has. However, if you're an addict, quoting Dr. Leshner again, you're in a state where the drug has totally taken over your being. So there's something about these biological changes that are going on at the cellular level that gets translated into compulsive, uncontrollable drug use on the behavioral level, end of quote. So for Dr. Leshner, free will is not about having some of one's brain states form independently of one's genetic constitution and environment. It's about being free of psychological compulsion and being true to one's character, to one's being. Next, consider what happens in the courtroom. According to the law library, a judge will only allow an accused person to enter a guilty plea if they consider that the accused, and I quote, exercised free will. The guilty plea is not accepted if, quote, the defendant isn't mentally competent, at the time he agrees to the plea, for example, due to a developmental disability, intoxication, or influence of narcotics, end of quote. Here, the ability to reason about one's actions figures prominently in the consideration of whether the act is free. The accused must be able to understand the court proceedings and, and quote, consult with his lawyer with a reasonable degree of rational understanding. Now that's from the Law Library um, publication titled Guilty Plea, Accepting the Plea, the element of Elements of Guilty Pleas. You'll find that reference in my essay. Uh, I think I've got it on the end slide as well. Now I discuss this in greater length and draw upon, the more, upon more real life examples in my essay. What these examples demonstrate though, is that both the common person and the medical and legal professional alike link the loss of free will in cases of addiction to feelings of compulsion, loss of personal identity and reasoning ability. That is loss of reasoning ability. The hard determinists and the libertarians notion of contra causality is notably absent from these considerations. So the fourth and last situation that can deprive us of uh, the ability to act freely is mental illness. 
This occurs where the mental illness constrains a person's mental capacity to reason and regulate their behaviour, either because of genetic history, accident or disease. Here are a couple of examples in which ordinary folk talk about how a mental illness robbed a person of free will. First example, June experienced hallucinations that commanded her to commit various acts. She writes, I find that it is like my free will has been removed and have no alternative but to obey, end of quote. She also linked this feeling of compulsion to the feeling that the voice inside her head, quote, keeps me from being myself. And we'll pick up this notion of character, personal identity later. So the second example, Herschel Harden is the father of a child with schizophrenia. He lamented that the illness deprived all those affected by the illness of the capacity for free will by robbing them of rationality and autonomy. As he put it, their personalities are subsumed by their distorted thoughts, end of quote. As these examples show again, the common themes in the ordinary person's way of thinking about free will are that the exercise of free will require that a person's character is intact and that they can reason. I want to talk for a moment about mental illness and the insanity defence as it's used in jurisprudence. jurisprudence. The insanity defence has a long history in jurisprudence. In many legal jurisdictions, the defence applies when it is judged that the accused is dispossessed of their free will. Experts for the defence must testify that the accused is either cognitively incompetent, unable to comprehend the nature of the act and to reason about it, or volitionally incompetent, unable to control their impulses. What's important to note here is that expert witness for the prosecution is never, is never called upon to demonstrate that the causes of the defendant's transgressions were themselves uncaused activities in the brain. Contrary to what the libertarian says, contracausal brain activity is not required to be proved in a court for the insanity de defence to be challenged. Now, for an example of the absence of free will in the mentally incapacitated, how that works um, in a legal defence, um, I refer you to the case of Colorado versus Canelli. The reference to that is in my essay. Um, now, in my essay, you'll also find a reference to a useful history and critical review of the insanity defence um, that's titled The Insanity Defence in the first in the 21st Century by Graycheck. Okay, um, so I've gone through the four situations um, that can limit our free will. Let's stop. This is the halfway point. So let's now stop for a 10-minute break so I and the rest of us can catch our breath. Warren actually had a few comments. It seems to come to whether heuristic responses when you're mostly reacting, uh, that form of system thinking, would free will be said to operate in those situations when someone throws something at you and you just reach up your hands and you catch it? Is, yeah, that, a, is that a free will scenario? Yeah, I was thinking about when I get breakfast in the morning, I go to the refrigerator, I pull out the milk, I get my bowl, 
Um, I get the cereal from the top shelf and I do it all. And it, it is very much automatic. It's habitual. And I was reflecting, well, did I freely choose to have breakfast this morning? Because much of it is automatic uh, responses. And I did conclude that even though there's a behavioural repertoire um, a habitual repertoire that, that I go through, um, it's still within my conscious control to do two things. Um, when I'm getting the breakfast bowl, I can decide not to get the breakfast uh, bowl. So even during that repertoire, at, at every point, I can decide not to. The second thing is when I get up in the morning, I can decide, oh, I'm going to have lunch, uh, I'm going to have breakfast with a friend of mine at 10 o'clock, so I'm not going to have breakfast um, now, so even though there's a behavioural repertoire, we can stop the re re repertoire and do something else before I start the repertoire and at any point uh, in the repertoire. Um, so that's with doing, uh, getting my breakfast. Uh, where your example, Akiva, where I throw my arms up to catch a ball, I'm inclined to think that that is an instinctual response. Unlike me getting breakfast, which is a <coughs> habitual repertoire putting my hands up to catch the ball is very much instinctual. And I'm inclined to think, no, I didn't put my hands up freely to catch the ball. Uh, Les, we will hand it back to you for the rest of the session. Thanks, Usha. So in the first part of my talk, um, brief recap, um, I put up the free will determinism landscape, um, what determinism means. Um, I asked the question, uh, why does uh, free will matter? And talked a little bit about both the moral and the legal implications um, of having and not having free will. Um, and said that the approach I'm taking is an ordinary language analysis away from the uh, rooms of the theologians and the philosophers and getting out there and seeing how the term free will is used in the way ordinary people use it, but more than that, how it's used in the medical profession and in the legal profession as well, which is consonant with the way ordinary people, it's a further refinement, the way ordinary people um, use it. And then I went through four situations, kinds of situations that we think that limit our capacity for free will. One was coercion, the other one's manipulation by a third, a third party, um, addictions and mental illness. So in the second part of the talk, um, I wanna talk a little bit about what, what are called paradigmatic examples of free will and what that tells us. I'll then go on to explaining what I think that shows as the four necessary conditions of free will, my 4C theory of free will. And then um, I'll talk about the big question that people like Sam Harris and the hard determinists uh, bring up and talk a lot about. Um, if, if everything's determined, how could we have done otherwise? And then lastly, I'll talk about uh, the supposed intuition of free will and how it's not an intuition at all. And then I'll make some concluding remarks. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about these paradigmatic examples of free will. So the examples of restrictions on free will that I've given so far, those four types of restrictions, 
um, that I've given so far are not exhaustive. However, they do represent the way ordinary folk think and talk about free will. If you're still skeptical, I encourage you to get into discussion groups offline or online and listen to or read comments from contributors on the freedom restricting circumstances I've highlighted. For example, get into discussion groups about whether people who are drug addicted um, uh, can still act freely. Uh, you know, look at the way ordinary people talk about whether this act was free or that type of act was not free and see what the kinds of considerations they bring up. You know, basically get out there get out of the philosophical and theological ivory tower and get out there in the real world. Um, so when you look at the way um, ordinary people talk about whether X was free or not free, the point I'm making is in, in those conversations, you won't see talk about neurophysiology and neurons. You won't find talk about um, X didn't do that freely because his synapses were all governed by the synaptic connections um, were all governed by prior states of his new uh, prior neuronal states you won't find that kind of talk at all so in ordinary people's minds what limits free will is not neuro, neuro neurological causality but coercion manipulation addiction and mental illness. This way of thinking has only been further elaborated and refined by modern developments in psychiatric practice and jurisprudence. Another way to illustrate my point is by looking at paradigmatic uses of the term free will. In common discourse, uh, in common discourse, imagine you're waiting in your local supermarket queue and you overhear this question asked in a conversation about a recent marriage. Mary asks Anisha, did you marry Sanjay of your own free will? If Anisha did not marry Sanjay of her own free will, what evidence would you be listening for in Anisha's answer? Well, you'd be listening for evidence of coercion or compulsion, such as them saying, my entire family would have abandoned me and I would have been evicted and left with no money if I didn't marry Sanjay. Now, if Anisha did marry Sanjay of her own free will, again, what evidence would you be listening for in Anisha's answer? Well, you'd be looking for signs of the absence of coercion and compulsion, such as them saying, yes, we fell in love at university and my parents had no objections. How many of you were thinking of and looking for evidence about the neurophysiological state of Anisha's brain? Who was waiting for Anisha to start talking about her motor cortex and whether there were sufficient physical causes, uh, sufficient physical causes firing her neurons? And um, as an addendum, just think about how we initially learn to apply the term free will to this act or that that act to certain circumstances when you learn from your parents and your friends and your teachers that act was free and that that act was not free think back and was there ever a case where your teacher or your parent brought up the the neuronal states of the person who you're talking about no so the lesson here is that questions about whether a person cho chose freely 
are practical questions rooted in people's day-to-day lives. Hard determinists in particular have taken our modern scientific understanding of the brain and overlaid this causal model on what they think common language terms such as free will mean. Scientists such as Sam Harris have also fallen into this trap of injecting their metaphysical understanding of the world into what they think is the common person's use of ordinary language terms. The absurdity of this kind of approach is also evident from looking at other paradigmatic instances of the uses of free. The term free is used as a modifier with a number of other nouns. Consider these examples. When we speak of a free range chicken, we are not meaning a chicken whose movements are contracausal. We are not meaning that the chicken moves in a way that breaks the laws of deterministic physics. We mean that the chicken's movements are not constricted by being housed in a cage or enclosed barn. Take the term free thought. When we advocate the right to free thought in society, we are upholding the right to thought and expression that is free from government, religious, and other institutional restrictions. We are not referring to thought that is contracausal. Similarly, a drawing done freehand does not mean a drawing that broke the laws of physics during its creation. It's a drawing that is created free from the constraints of instruments, templates, and guides. There are many other examples that illustrate the same point, including free vote, free fall, and free enterprise. Now you can see the pattern here. The ordinary language critique I'm advancing here tonight can be extended to judicial language and thinking. Throughout the modern history of jurisprudence, in determining whether a defendant was absent of the capacity for free will at the time of the crime, no jury or judge has requested or called in expert witnesses to attest to the fact that at the time of the crime, the defendant's relevant brain states transition from a physically contracausal state to a causal state. This is not surprising, as no dualist theory of mind and body has delivered on the promise. No metaphysician yet has presented evidence for how when a particular when particular neurofirings, neuron firings in a person's brain gets removed from the chains of causation to which neighbouring neurons belong. The same is the case for the indeterminists advocating random quantum effects in the brain. In fact, judges examine and juries are asked to consider whether there were any circumstances that either eliminated or mitigated the defendant's ability to choose freely. The types of circumstances the judge and jury consider include precisely those types of encumbrances I outlined, coercion or manipulation by a third party, drug addiction, and mental illness. These are precisely the impediments to free will to which the compatibilist points. If you want to find out more about how judicial defences work, uh, please see my essay where I've included a reference for an excellent systematic summary. It's called Criminal Law Defences, a Systematic Analysis by Paul Robinson. Some hard determinists and libertarians have objected to this ordinary language account of free will 
by pointing to a series of psychological studies that examine how the person on the street actually thinks. These surveys, they argue, demonstrate that ordinary folk mean free will in the contracausal sense. However, when you look at these studies, on balance, the better designed studies show the opposite. The people's use is agnostic to the question of contracausality. My review is titled Psychological Research on Free Will Intuitions, a critical review, and you can read it and, and get it from the metaphys metaphysics section of my website at Rational Realm. Now, look, I just want to stress this point because um, it's an important point. So hard determinists push back and say, hey, you compatibilists, you're bending the meaning of free will. Um, you're playing these word games. Free will doesn't mean anything like that for the ordinary person because the, bat the battle over the term free will is the battle over what the ordinary person means by free will, not what philosophers mean, what not theologians mean, but what the ordinary person means. So in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a number of uh, what are called philosophical psychological studies psychologists have teamed up with philosophers and they conduct experiments and they put um, scenarios in front of experimental subjects, mostly um, uh, university students. They give them the scenario, they give them a bit of backgrounding and then they ask whether person X in this scenario um, acted freely in that case or not. And then on the basis of their answers, they judge whether the, that ordinary use was a compatibilist or incompatibilist or hard determinist. There's been a number of these studies. As I said, I looked at some of them, and from what I can get, uh, gather um, from my analysis, the better designed ones come out on the side of a compatibilist rendering of free will talk. Um, but if you want to follow that up more, I certainly encourage you to go to that review paper of mine. And in that, there's a long bibliography of quite a number of these philosophicals psychology um, research experiments. So what I want to come to now is what I consider the four necessary conditions for free will. So far, I've crystallized the four types of situational impediments to the exercise of free will. One, coercion, two, manipulation, three, addiction, and four, mental illness. What is it about these situations that minimizes a person's capacity to act freely? In the examples I discussed, four requirements for free will seem to recur throughout. For brevity, I've called this compatibilist account of the requirements for free will the 4C theory. And these four Cs are these. Uh, one, the absence of compulsion. Two, the absence of control. Three, consonants with the person's character. And four, uh, cognitive capability. So I want now to describe briefly each of these four requirements. The first requirement, compulsion, is that the act not feel compelled by the agent situation. The feeling of compulsion I'm referring to here is an introspective psychological experience. Here the agent feels that they will sacrifice something of great value to them if they do not act in a particular way. Think of having a gun put to your head and having to give up your wallet. The agent feels that they had no choice but to act as they did. The second requirement, control, is that the act not be controlled by a third party. Unlike in the case of compulsion, the first 
uh, criteria, the agent does not feel as if they are being compelled by circumstance. However, with their actions being manipulated either directly or indirectly by a third party, they have lost their autonomy. This requirement goes to the heart of what it is to be a moral agent with responsibility for one's actions. When control of a person's behaviour is surrendered to another moral agent, the locus of responsibility moves along that line of control to the third party agent in control of the human puppet's behaviour. The third requirement, character, is that the action is consonant with and a consequence of the agent's character. When the agent's behaviour is out of character, the person is not a bona fide agent of their own actions. This requirement often acts in tandem with the second requirement, lack of third party control as a marker of personhood. So we can include in here, um, you know, the mad scientist putting in a brain implant to make sure that a person votes a particular way at the next election. Um, so changing the, their pattern of voting or the way they vote uh, is, to, is not consonant with that voter's behaviour. So the fourth requirement uh, is cognition. And with this fourth requirement, uh, it's that the agent has the cognitive capability to offer reasons for their action and to deliberate about alternative courses of action. Without rational agency, the person is not exercising autonomy and is better described as a passive repository of impulses. Each of these four requirements is necessary for a choice to be considered free. Even if one of them is missing, the agent has lost their capacity for free action. What ties all four requirements together is the fundamental axiom I expressed early on in this talk, that a free will is an unencumbered will. With the advent of scientific knowledge and modern technology, this basic understanding of encumbrance as compulsion <clears throat> has been supplemented with these additional requirements for moral and rational autonomy. And this next paragraph is the single paragraph that I think best sums up my position. What seems clear is that philosophical and legal thought over the last century or so has largely coalesced around the view that freedom of the will is a characteristic of an autonomous, conscious agent who can reason and deliberate about alternative courses of action. The thinking here is that such a person is constituted by their character and that within the bounds of this character, the agent faces a range of options on how to act in a given situation. When this range is encumbered or restricted by either subverting the person's character or compromising their capacity for rational deliberation and choice, the person's freedom is diminished. <laughs> and let me make one point that I make in my essay that I, I haven't made in this talk. And that is <clears throat> um, when we're considering a case of a person acting freely or not, um, it's, it's it's not a case of um, always yes or always no. There are actions for which we act freely and uh, I mean, um, voluntary actions. Some we act freely, some we don't. But even for the ones where we act freely, it's on a continuum. Um, and these, 
so when there's hard cases, we can say we tend to think that act is 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 more towards the free end of the spectrum, and that act is more towards the un the unfree act um, part of the spectrum. Take cases, for example, of drug addiction. If somebody robs a store to feed their drug ha habit, if they're just mildly addicted and they've still got some rational capacity, we'd say, well, maybe they're not acting completely freely because there is an addiction, uh, but they're not completely um, unfree either. But when they get to the case where, you know, their addiction is costing um, hundreds of dollars a day and they are massively addicted, then th that's a more extreme case. And we're more inclined to think, oh, in that case, they didn't act freely at all. So there are gradations of freedom when it comes to assessing uh, free acts. Okay, I want to say a little bit now about free will and the could have done otherwise. And this is a big point that the hard determinists uh, make about um, determinism and free action. Um, so in this section of my talk, I want to say something briefly about how we could have acted otherwise, even when in principle all of our actions can be predicted with certainty. If God or Laplace's demon or a supercomputer <clears throat> had a complete understanding of a previous state of the universe and the physical laws that govern it, it would have been it would have been able to predict with absolute certainty that I was going to say absolute certainty just now. How could I have done other than say what I just said? Moral philosophers have a deep interest in this question, as most take it as axiomatic that if it is the, that the case that I ought to have done something else, then it must have must be the case that I could have done that other thing. Our answer also impacts how we hold other people morally responsible for their actions. Now, the hard determinists and libertarians, the incompatibilists, say that in a deterministic universe, we could not have done other than we did. Compatibilists like me say that we could have. The philosophical arguments on both sides of the debate can get very complicated. You can read the technical details of my solution in section seven of my essay. Here, I wanna give you the layperson's answer. So let me ask you a question. How many of you have a kitchen knife at home that is able to cut bread? Now, this is not a trick question. I'm sure everyone's got a knife at home that is able to cut bread. So you all would have answered yes. So my question now is, what is that knife doing now, right this minute? Well, you'll tell me it's sitting in the drawer at home doing nothing. But while it's sitting there, does it have the ability to cut bread? Does it have the ability to cut bread? Now, if you answered yes to my first question, the answer must be yes. So the conclusion here is that even though your knife is not cutting bread right now, it could have cut bread. To say that X is able to do Y is to say that X can do Y in a variety of circumstances. Think about it. God or Laplace's demon or a supercomputer would have predicted that your knife was not cutting bread right this minute, but it still had the ability to cut bread even when it was not cutting bread. It could have cut bread even when in fact it was laying idle in your drawer. 
Well, if a knife acting in accordance with deterministic laws is still able to cut bread when it, it is, in, is not in fact cutting bread, then why, why aren't deterministic human beings able to do other than they in fact do? Now, I think that's the $64,000 question for the hard determinists and the libertarians. In, um, now, I've got a contrived example here of the knife cutting bread, uh, able to cut bread when it's, when it's laying idle. Um, in my essay, um, I devote a little section to this where I give some real life examples where we say something could have done otherwise. Uh, we, uh, one example is uh, the hurricane, hurricane Katrina, Katrina would have killed a lot more people if it had come online sooner. There we're saying the hurricane um, could have done otherwise in different circumstances. That's an inanimate object obeying the laws of physics. Now, what gives knives, motor cars, electric fans, and human beings the power, the capacity, the ability, the capability to do things other than they in fact do? The short answer is that this ability derives from the intrinsic properties, the characteristics of the entity. In the case of your knife, these characteristics are its physical profile like the hardness and sharpness of its blade. Likewise, in the case of human beings, these characteristics include a person's psychological profile. Now, knives, motor cars, electric fans, and human beings maintain their capabilities even when external circumstances change. Your knife continues to be able to cut bread in virtue of its intrinsic properties, even when it is not actually cutting bread. Likewise, I maintain the ability to say something other than absolute certainty before, even though that is what, in fact, even, even though that is what I, in fact, said. So that's all I want to say on our ability do, to do other than we did. And if once again, if you'd like to follow this up, please read section seven of my essay and drop me a, um, an email if you want to talk more about that. So um, I want to talk briefly now about this intuition of free will. And this is the bit I promised you about, I was going to end on a magical note. Libertarians say that we have a strong intuition, a compelling feeling that when we act freely, we act contra-causally. For example, the libertarian philosopher, Timothy O'Connor, puts our ordinary experience like this. And I quote, the decision I make is no mere vector sum of internal and external forces acting upon me during the process of deliberation. Rather, I bring it about directly, you might say, in response to the various considerations. I am the source of my own activity, not merely in a relative sense as the most proximate and salient locus of an unbroken chain of causal transactions leading up to this event, but fundamentally in a way not prefigured by what has gone before, or again, so it seems, end of quote. Some hard determinists go along with this idea that we have this feeling of contracausality when we act. For example, free will skeptic Trick Slattery tells us on his blog, and I quote, like an optical illusion or an illusion created by your favorite magician, we are experiencing something that isn't really there. It's a trick of the mind, something the mind does 
to fill in the gaps. We don't see all the variables that go into our thoughts and decisions. So we think those thoughts and decisions are more free than they actually are, end of quote. I propose that both the libertarians and these hard determinists are mistaken here. Ask yourself, what is it to have an illusion of something? Free will skeptic Trick Slattery uses the well-known Kinesia triangle, um, that optical illusion as an analogy. Now in, now, in what sense is the white triangle that you see there an optical illusion? Well, in the sense that you appear to be seeing a bounded triangle when there is in fact no bounded triangle. The illusion is that the image represents what you perceive in a way different from the way it is in reality. Consider this, for someone to say that they experience the illusion of seeing a bounded white triangle, they must know what it's like to really see a bounded white triangle. Yes, otherwise, how would they know it was an illusion of a bounded white triangle they experienced and not something else? like a bounded white square. How do we reconcile this truism with this free will skeptics claim? Slattery claims we experience the illusion of an underdetermined will, that is a will that is not fully determined by our genetics and environment. But ask yourself, do we really know what it's like to experience an underdetermined will, to experience the real deal? Even free will skeptic Slattery admits that that's an impossibility. He writes, why does this intuitive feeling that all options before us are real possibilities happen? Because we don't, nor is it possible for us to see all of the variables that push us to one option or the other. What I'm not seeing are the causal variables that actually push me to the one over the other. I'm not seeing the specific neural setup of my brain physiology. End of quote. So, without knowing what the real thing feels like, this kind of free will skeptic can hardly claim that we are experiencing an illusion of the real thing, an illusion of an underdetermined will. The upshot here is that if free will is not the psychological illusion that these free will skeptics claim it is, then this can't be a reason for saying that we don't have free will. Could the libertarians like O'Connor be right after all? They claim that they really directly perceive contra-causal will. But how can they have this perception? How is it that they directly perceive some of their decisions as resulting from neuro, neural firings in the brain that are not completely physically caused? Imagine that you're at your local cafe with your friend. If you're like me, you'll point to the cappuccino on the menu board. Sure, you don't feel any kind of physical impulse forcing your finger to point to that menu item. You'd be the first to know if there was such a force acting on your finger. Furthermore, you don't feel any kind of impulse forcing neurons in your brain to adopt particular action potentials. But notice the queerness of the latter kind of feeling. Feelings of your finger being forced are natural. <clears throat> and we all know what that feels like. However, what would it feel like to have particular neurons in your brain forced into particular states by physical forces? 
at this very moment, there are billions of neurons in your brain that are having their states determined by the action potentials of other neurons. <clears throat> With these neurons, though, you don't, you don't get to feel what it feels like to have these neurons fire in a completely deterministic fashion. What happens at the biochemical level under your skull is opaque to your conscious awareness. Let me give you another quick example. Think about your eyes. You can blink them freely whenever you wish, but when you're not thinking about them, your eyes blink spontaneously every few seconds. This automatic blinking is triggered by activity in your premotor brainstem and happens without your conscious deliberation. However, when they blink automatically, you don't get the feeling, you don't get the seeming that the neurons firing in your premotor brainstem are fully caused in that moment. Similarly, you don't get to feel what your neurons are doing when you perform the exact same blinking, uh, blinking behavior willingly. Our subjective experiences don't give us a window into the neuronal goings on in, in our brain when we blink involuntarily compared with when we blink freely. What we can conclude from this introspective psychological reflection about which kinds of states we can have a feeling about and which we can't is that these hard determinists give away too much to the libertarians. The illusion of contracausal free will that these hard determinists refer to is an illusion itself. It's a shimmerer that only serves to confuse the debate. We, in fact, do not have an illusion of contracausal free will because it's not the kind of thing that we can have an illusion about. If our feeling of free will is not a feeling of contracausal willing, then what is it? As I've suggested throughout this talk, it's the feeling of feeling in inverted commas, it's the feeling of the absence of compulsion. The feeling of free will then is not so much a positive feeling, it is the absence of a feeling. Just as being pain-free is not a feeling, being pain-free is simply the absence of the feeling of pain. Okay, so to wrap up this talk, let me summarize what I've tried to show. I began by taking a helicopter view of what the free will determinism debate is about, its key terms and its importance for questions about the nature of moral responsibility. I trace briefly the origin of the term free will and how historical usage and today's major dictionaries render its meaning as absence of constraint. Through examining a number of cases of how ordinary folk engage in free will talk, I showed four ways in which free will can be constrained, coercion, manipulation, addiction, and mental illness. Four common themes emerged from this survey that illustrated the central features of a free act. I labeled these four requirements for free will as the four C's, absence of compulsion, absence of third party control, consonance with the agent's character and cognitive competence. Throughout this survey, we found that the hard determinists and libertarians notion 
that contra-causality is required for free will is absent from the thinking of ordinary folk. It turns out that this notion of contra-causality is a projection of philosophers and theologians, metaphysical presuppositions onto folk beliefs. Free will talk is largely agnostic to such metaphysical, metaphysical commitments. Free will talk is more of an expression of the day-to-day -day concerns of ordinary people rather than a window into their theological and neuroscientific beliefs. Okay, so this mundane conclusion was further reinforced by looking at other non-spooky uses of the word free, such as in the phrase free-range chickens. For those worried about how we could have done otherwise in a deterministic universe, um, and we need that notion of could have done otherwise to, re to rescue our notions of moral responsibility, um, I gave a straightforward explanation that did not require us having the magical ability to contravene the laws of nature. Finally, I tried to dispel the mistaken notion that ordinary folks sometimes experience the illusion of contracausal free will. If you'd like to examine the question of free will further, I encourage you to download my essay or read it online. Tonight, we didn't have time to discuss how the question of free will, determinism and libertarianism impacts our notions of moral responsibility, praise and blame. If you're interested in this question, check out the final section of my essay, I think it's section eight, where I discuss the implications. Um, here are the works I referred to tonight. Um, now, there is a much more comprehensive list of references uh, that I've included in the essay, Free Will and Compatibilism. So thank you for taking the time to listen to what I had to say. I'm now very interested in getting your questions and your thoughts on this next question of free will. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Les. I think that was a terrific uh, grounding and furthering of our understanding of free will, which... Uh, on you, on your view, is effectively an unencumbered will, and uh, very interested in your uh, your uh, your case against the hard determinists such as Sam Harris and the libertarians. So uh, I'm sure people will have questions there. You've given us uh, the idea of uh, not having compulsion, having no control by a third party, actions based on character, and the agent having cognitive ability to reason about a decision. So you've given us very substantive uh, explanation of what free will is, why it's not an illusion, and why it's uh, compatible with the determinism.